Father, as we come to your word this morning, this evening, we thank you for it. And we know that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And so we ask, Lord, that as we examine your word tonight, that you would accomplish those things in us in order that we would glorify you and in order that we would grow in the likeness of Christ for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue looking at verses 7 and 8 tonight. We'll continue looking at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. On June 28th of this year, the New York Daily News ran a story about a man in Minnesota who uh, was pulled over for driving without uh, wearing his seatbelt. And of course, you know that if they pull you over for driving without a seatbelt, it's really something else, but that's just their excuse. Anyway, the officer uh, took the, the man's ID, his, his driver's license, and he went back to his patrol car to run his ID, only to discover that there was a warrant out for this man's arrest. And when the officer returned to the car to arrest the man, the driver was waiting for him with a get-out-of-jail-free card from the board game Monopoly Obviously to no avail, although the police department, they actually went to social media and posted a picture of the card and wrote that they appreciated the humor. And while it's pretty funny to imagine somebody having the nerve to do that, I don't know of anybody other than Noel who might do something like that. It's pretty funny to imagine somebody having the nerve to do that, you know, to pull a stunt like this. It's, it's only funny because we realize that the man knew that it was comical. The man knew that it was funny. Imagine a man, imagine if this guy had thought that this card was really going to serve that purpose, that it was really going to get him out of jail for free. We might be more inclined to think that he needs a thorough psychiatric examination than we are inclined to laugh at him. And so with that in mind, the majority of humanity, we have to understand is planning on using something similar on the day that they stand before God in judgment. They plan on using something that is of no real value. It's probably not a Monopoly card, but maybe it's the notion that they were a good person who did good things with their life. Maybe it's the idea that the good in their life outweighed the bad. Whatever the idea, whatever it may be, they get this idea that They're able to escape God's judgment in some way other than the way which God has ordained, prescribed. And given our culture's disdain and their their hatred, their distaste for any kind, any type of judgment, maybe it's the idea that God is, is all love and that God would never judge them. Maybe that's what they're depending on. But it's all so foolish. It's all such foolishness. All of these things are so ridiculous. And they will do them as much on Judgment Day as it did this guy good to use the get-out-of-jail-free card with this police officer in Minnesota. Only on Judgment Day, nobody's going to be laughing. And there won't be anything funny about it. And as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians tonight, I'd like Uh, to you to turn your attention to verses 7 and 8. That's what we're going to be covering tonight. 
Um, as we've seen over the course of the past four weeks as we've been studying our book, the book of Ephesians, which was circulated among the churches in Asia Minor, we saw that it begins with Paul immediately going into this rich, this deep doxological statement about salvation in which he shows us that our salvation is Trinitarian in nature. We saw that the Father uh, elects or He predestines a people for salvation to be brought into His family as sons and daughters. We've seen that the, the Son redeems the elect and we saw that the Holy Spirit seals each individual believer, guaranteeing the promise of salvation unto all who believe. Verse 3 said this, and this is really kind of the launching point of this doxological statement that we're in the middle of looking at. In verse 3, Paul said this, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. We, we have it. We have it now. And so as Paul continued, what, what he was really doing, what he's really doing is he, as he keeps going is he's elaborating on the spiritual blessings that the Father has given us in Christ. Verses 4-6 to six covered the blessings of the Father, and last week we started to look at the blessings of the Son. And that starts in verse 7. Uh, so let's just start with verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1. It says, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So last week we talked about redemption and how the book of Hosea, the story of Hosea and Gomer was really a, a picture, an illustration of the way that Christ has redeemed us. Because redemption is the paying of a price. It's paying a ransom. And we saw that we are slaves to sin, but Christ shed His blood to redeem us, to purchase a people for Himself. The next thing that Paul tells us, after telling us that we have redemption, is that in Christ we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ we have redemption, and in Him, and in Him alone, we have the remission of sins. Now that's a, that's a King James word, King James Version word, remission. It's not in the English Standard Version, but redemption and remission fit awfully well together. So, remission. We have redemption and we have remission. We have forgiveness. And this too was accomplished by the shedding of Christ's blood on Calvary. And in fact, we would do well to remember that Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says this. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And of course, as the author of Hebrews wrote that, he was reflecting on the way that the shedding of blood in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law was kind of a typology. It was a, it was a foreshadowing of the shedding of blood that was carried out by Christ. So he, the, the author of Hebrews writes this. He says this starting in verse 18 of chapter 9. He says, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. The idea is that the blood 
was cleansing. The blood had a purifying effect on the people and on the book and on the vessels to be used in worship. Now to many people, it might seem kind of ridiculous, it might even seem ludicrous that God would somehow be pleased or appeased by the shedding of blood. To many people, they'd say, you know, that's really barbaric. That's really gruesome. I can't believe in a God like that. In fact, if you know who, uh, who Marcion was, he was a heretic from the first and, and second century who believed that there must be two gods. There's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament because the God of the Old Testament who demanded the shedding of blood, what kind of a God is that? It's not the same God as the God of the New Testament, he thought. But he didn't understand the significance So how is it that God is appeased by blood? Maybe the accusation would look something like this. If if God is so loving, if God is so good and, and so loving, why can't He just forgive and call it a day? Why does blood have to be shed? Why why such why such gruesome, why such gory details? And that's a good question. And it's a question worth exploring. You see, blood represents life. You'll remember that Noah, in the book of Genesis, when, when Noah uh, reached land, when he, when he was finally on the land, uh, he was given instructions for how to treat the animals that he was going to be using for food. God said this to him. He said, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. In Leviticus 17, we read this. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. He goes on to say that the life of every creature is its blood. The blood is its life. It's like over and over again, he's making the same point as if to underline it and put it all in in bold font so that you can't miss it. That's the way it worked in Hebrew. They didn't have bold fonts or, you know, capital letters or anything like that to make things stand out. So there would be a lot of repetition. Where there was a lot of repetition, you wanted to make sure that you were paying attention and didn't miss the point. So it's repeated several times so that nobody would miss the point when they read it. But the point is that the shedding of blood is a picture of the loss of life. The shedding of blood represents death. And as you look through the Mosaic Law and the rituals, the sacrificial rituals that they had to perform, you can't help but notice that sin after sin after sin after sin required a sacrificial offering required the shedding of blood. And the point was to remind the people that sin had a consequence. It was to remind the people that that sin was not inconsequential, but that the wage of sin is death. And the Israelites should should have understood that this was a picture of substitutionary atonement because it should have reminded them that their sin demanded death. It was only in mercy that God allowed that it would be an animal in their place, a substitute rather than the sinner himself. The wage of sin is death. Paul reminds us of that, of course, in Romans chapter 6. And what we must understand is that that's talking about us. Our death is required by sin. It's not talking about the the death of of a bird or a lamb or a bull. 
No, our death. Our, our sin deserves our death. And this is humanity's universal condition. All have sinned. All have sinned. All have trespassed God's holy law. And even those who don't have a Bible have done what their conscience forbid them do. They've done what their conscience should have prevented them from doing. That's the law of God written on man's heart that you find in Romans chapter 2. And so with that said, it's important for people to know that our greatest need is not for money or for power or for position or for comfort or for fellow man's approval. No, our greatest need is to be forgiven. Our greatest need is for grace. And we must understand that until an individual is forgiven, he is God's enemy. See, Christ did more than just redeem us. He did redeem us. But He did more than redeem us. He didn't purchase us and then bring us into God's family as enemies who still owed a debt that we couldn't pay. No, the person who is in Christ has been forgiven. The debt has been released. They're no longer enemies with God. So why did Christ's blood need to be shed? It's really a pretty simple answer. It's because someone always eats the cost of sin. Someone always eats the cost of sin. Think of it this way. Let's say that, let's say that you've got a child. And your child gets hurt by another child. This other child got maybe a little bit too worked up. And your child ends up with a broken leg. And so this other child comes to you, and with tears flowing down his face, he, he says to you, I'm so, so sorry. I, I didn't mean to hurt your child. I, I don't know how I got so carried away, but I got carried away, and I am so, so sorry. Please forgive me. Now keep in mind, this is a fellow child that we're talking about. What's the right thing to do? In our day and age, a lot of people might say the right thing to do is to sue the parents. But the right thing to do is to forgive. It's a child. Can we agree on that much? I mean, yeah, you know, it was careless, but you were a child too. You know what it's like. You know that accidents happen with kids. So let's, let's suppose that you agree to just forgive this other child, this child who hurt your child. Let's say that you, just, you accept the apology and you forgive them. Does that fix your child's leg? No. Of course not, right? Your child still has a broken leg. You, so you take your child to the hospital and they set the bone and they put the leg in a cast. And if you haven't done this before, it's very, very expensive and even if you, you have insurance, you still have a deductible to pay. So forgiving the child doesn't absolve the cost of the accident. Forgiving this other child doesn't mean that the cost just goes away. No, somebody has to pay it. Whether it's you or your insurance company or somebody, somebody's got to pay for it. Think of it another way. If you think back to the Great Recession from, this started you know, a little bit over 10 years ago. It started with a bubble in the U.S. housing market, right? Shady and, and dangerous lending practices uh, butchered our economy as all these people, scores of people, were buying homes that they couldn't really afford without taking out a loan that would 
balloon after a certain amount of time. And so what you saw was there were all these people who were paying, let's say hypothetically, $1,200 a month on their loan. And suddenly the balloon period hit and all of a sudden they're not paying $1,200 a month anymore. Now they have to pay $3,000 or $4,000 a month. That's exactly what happened. And so what do you think happened when people's mortgage loans doubled, quadrupled? They defaulted. People defaulted on their payments like crazy, which sent banks into a tailspin that the banks were unable to pull out of. If you remember the statistics, Bank of America alone had so many people defaulting on loans that they owed $17 billion that they couldn't afford to pay. Now, where was that money going to come from? Somebody had to pay it, right? It has to come from somewhere. And so as the banks nosedived into what was certain destruction, it was decided by the government that the banks were too big to fail. Anybody remember that phrase? The banks were too big to fail. In other words, if they failed, that was it. This country was, was over. And so the government stepped in and they covered the debt, providing what is recognized by historians and economists as the largest bailout in human history. And if you remember, a lot of banks were forced out of business during that time, or they became worth so little that larger banks bought them out. But the debt was forgiven, and catastrophe was averted, kind of at the last second. But let me ask you this, what happened to that debt? Did it just disappear? Nope, that's not the way it works. That's, that's actually a fiscal impossibility. The debt has to go somewhere. Somebody had to pay it. And so in this case, when the government paid it, really, I mean, that's the American people. The American people had to eat the cost of that. God's plan was to forgive. But the debt of sin, nevertheless, had to be paid. It had to be paid by somebody. See, God created man for fellowship with Himself, for communion with Himself, to enjoy Him and to glorify Him forever. But sin separated us from fellowship with God. And God cannot even look upon sin. God has a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to sin. As Paul said to the Corinthians, what fellowship has light with darkness? And that's how tolerant God is towards sin. He can't be in its presence. Sin earned us death. All we deserved was God's wrath. We had sinned against Him throughout every nanosecond of our human existence. And what kind of debt do you suppose our sin had amassed on us? A debt that would take an eternity for us to pay. We could never finish paying it off. You'd, have, you'd sooner pay off a $100 billion loan making monthly payments of $25 than you would pay off the debt that we owed to God. See, our greatest need was to be forgiven. But forgiveness comes at a cost. Somebody has to pay the cost. A very high cost in this case. The blood of Christ being shed for us. Christ was our substitute. He, he stood in our place as the substitute for all who would repent and place saving faith in Him. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
the work that Christ did in our place on Calvary, on the cross, involved Him taking our sin upon Himself. Our sin being imputed, being legally transferred to Him. Our sin was piled up on top of Him. And in exchange, His perfect righteousness, His perfect righteousness, His perfect obedience was imputed to all whom the Father gave to the Son. All who would place saving faith in Christ alone. And so, through the shedding of Christ's blood, atonement was made. The payment was made to redeem the elect. The sin debt of the elect was paid in full. What happened at the cross was God executing His perfect justice against sin, but also acting as the justifier of all who would believe. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When we understand how great our sin is, and how great our sin debt was. We see that the housing crisis that, uh, that preceded the Great Recession wasn't the biggest debt payoff in human history. No, that, that title belongs to Christ. The biggest payoff in human history was done on our behalf by Christ. In Christ, we must confess that we have the greatest treasure In Christ, we must confess that we have the richest of blessings. And He did it, Paul says, according to the riches of His grace. This is known as the doctrine we talked about this morning, the doctrine of sola gratia. Salvation by grace alone. God didn't elect us or adopt us or redeem us or forgive us because we earned any of these things. No, they were all done according to the richness of His grace. And it was all His initiative. It was a gift. It's His gift. Salvation is all of the Lord. And it's a gift that's given freely. By grace, not merit. He unveils the eyes of our hearts that we may see that our greatest need is for redemption and remission. Our greatest need is for grace. He grants us repentance that we may turn away from our wicked ways. And He draws us, or as we saw this morning, He hauls us to Christ. And it's all grace. Let's look quickly at verse 8. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8 says, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. As we come to understand how costly sin's consequences are, it might be tempting to think that God might run a little bit low on grace toward us. Kind of like going to the bank. You know, if if you were to indefinitely take out loans, if they were to actually give them to you, they would eventually run out of money. But that's not the way it works with God. Paul tells us that He lavished His grace upon us. That doesn't carry any implication or connotation of being just barely enough to get us by, does it? 
No, the idea is that He gives us far more grace than we could ever use. Far more grace than we could ever possibly exhaust. The Greek word for lavished, the Greek word that gets translated as lavished, means to exceed a fixed number of measure or to be left over and above a certain number or measure. His grace toward us, Paul's telling us, that His grace toward us is beyond measure. And yet, as Christians, as people who have been redeemed, as people who have been forgiven, we must not live in a way that takes advantage of or abuses the grace that we've been given. Yes, we are forgiven. No, God's grace will never run out on us. But being forgiven isn't permission to sin any more than forgiving that child who broke your child's leg is the same as giving them permission to break the other leg or break another arm while you're at it. For the believer to live in habitual unrepentant sin is incompatible with the redemption and the remission that we have in Christ. Because He not only set us free from the penalty of sin, that's justification, but He also set us free from the power and the persuasion of sin. And that's what the Christian journey is all about. That's what sanctification is all about. It's about us learning to break free by the power of Christ and the grace of God working within us. Learning to break free from the sinful habits to which we were once slaves. So knowing that we have redemption and remission of sins in Christ should cause our hearts to absolutely overflow with joy and thanksgiving for this great gift that we have in Christ. It should inspire a deepening resolve within us to strive for holiness without which no one will see God and to live our lives as living sacrifices unto Him. If you have repented and placed saving faith in Christ alone for redemption and remission, He wants you to know that you do not have to fear His judgments. You do not have to fear His condemnation. He has accepted you the same way He accepts Christ. There are no sins that you have committed or that you can commit that are too great for Him to forgive. You are completely forgiven. And it is all of grace. An abundance of grace that He has lavished upon you. And when you understand that, it changes everything. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see God. It changes the way you see your relationship with God. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. that, that is, that's why grace is so amazing. So don't lose sight of that fact. Live in light of that truth. Cling to that truth. And let that truth grow in you, abide in you, dwell in you so that your life may be lived in light of God's grace.
Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your goodness and for the richness, the depths of Your great, great love and Your mercy and Your grace unto us. So we pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to walk in light of that truth. Teach us, O Father, to live lives that are obedient to You, that reflect Your goodness, that reflect Your mercy, that we may be a light in this dark world for the glory of Christ. Take me deeper